Welcome to another episode of About Mansfield. I'm Steve Casillo, always broadcasting from the Cellmark Studios. Colleen Daniel is here with the About Mansfield news team. This is episode 89. We thank you for being here with us as well. Coming up on this episode, Mansfield news, sports, and weather for the upcoming week. And don't forget the trivia question of the week for a $25 gift card to the restaurant of your choice, courtesy of Mansfield Overhead Door. Let's take a look at the stories we're covering this week. COVID-19 continues its increasing local spread. Texas Rangers baseball team honors the Mansfield Three. Battle of the Nines charity event marks 35 years of giving back to the community. City announces the return of the Veterans Day Parade. Which Mansfield ISD football team was the lone winner last week? I'll tell you in sports. The big boy locomotive and where its oil comes from. Are you suffering from chronic headaches? I'm Katrina Brown, and today we are discussing when a headache may be a migraine on your Texas Health Tip of the Week. Today I get myself into hot water, but since when is that a new thing? I'm Home Improvement Specialist Terry Radswin, and we'll get into that in the Ask Terry segment later in the show. In this week's Cocktail of the Week segment, I'll be talking about the most misunderstood cocktail in the world. We have the seven-day weather forecast, and Steve concludes his interview with the Reverend Dr. Katie Hayes. We are Mansfield's only source for news, talk, and information. This is About Mansfield. Hey Mansfield, did you know cannabis is legal in Texas? I'm Sonia Salazar, co-owner of Wise Wellness. As cannabis educators and advocates, we can answer any questions you have regarding hemp-derived CBD. Wise Wellness carries a variety of products, including oils, topicals, edibles, and pet products. We are located on FM 157 beside Mansfield Fun Jewelry. As a thank you to the About Mansfield podcast listeners, we are offering a buy one, get one free special on select products. Just mention the podcast at checkout. Follow us on social media for our latest updates. Search for Wise Wellness. That's WISE, W-Y-S-E, Wellness on Facebook and Instagram. See you soon. Your logo or emblem defines who you are, so why not show it off with custom printed shirts? I'm Dana Wood with Ohana Screen Printing. We are a custom screen printing company and can print your design or help you create a new design. While t-shirts are our specialty, we can print on all kinds of apparel such as masks, hoodies, bags, you name it. Ohana means family and that's exactly why we started Ohana Screen Printing, to bring our family and community together through creative expression. We look forward to adding you to our family. Rest assured that when you do business with Ohana Screen Printing, that your dollars stay local as we are a family-owned business based right here in Mansfield. If you're part of a business, organization, or sports team looking to make a visual presence, hit us up on Facebook or ohanascreenprinting.com. That's ohanascreenprinting.com. Hi, I'm Katie Hayes, pastor of Galileo Church, and you're listening to About Mansfield. Welcome back to About Mansfield. MLB.com describes it as, quote, a little-known anniversary in the Metroplex education system, end quote, but longtime residents of Mansfield clearly remember August 30th, 1956, as the day Floyd Moody, along with Nathaniel Jackson and Charles Moody, attempted to integrate Mansfield High School. The Mansfield Three, as they became known, were unsuccessful, and public schools in Mansfield remained segregated for another eight years until the passing of the Civil Rights Act in 1964. 
In a pregame ceremony last week, the Texas Rangers baseball team recognized and brought awareness to the Mansfield Three on the 65th anniversary of their attempt at integration. The 82-year-old Moody, who is a retired pastor at a church in Fort Worth and is the lone survivor of the three, was honored by throwing out the first pitch. Moody's daughter, Beverly Lightfoot, sang the national anthem backed by the Minister's Justice Coalition of Texas Choir. The Rangers partnered with the Black on Base Negro Leagues for Project the Positivity Night at the ballpark in Arlington and capped the evening with a 4-3 victory over the Colorado Rockies on the field. Everybody loves a golf tournament, especially when charity is involved. And this coming Sunday is a golf tournament. This coming Saturday night is the charity dinner. And to tell you all about it, uh, we have on the telephone is uh, Todd Chapel with the uh, Battle of the Nines. He is the chairman of the event. Uh, Todd, welcome to About Mansfield. Thanks, Steve. Glad to be here. I appreciate you having me on. For those who don't know what the Battle of the Nines is, explain to them, give a little history and and what it does for the community of Mansfield. It was a little organization uh, back in 1986 that, um, I'm sorry, 1985 that started with a couple members of Walnut Creek Country Club, the Regalas and the Tierney family, started it to kind of help those in Mansfield uh, specifically at Walnut Creek Country Club that maybe we're on some hardship, hard times um, from a financial aspect. And so uh, this year, uh, we'll be celebrating 35 years. And I say 35, it's 35 years where we've had the event because last year we did not due to the COVID. So it's a organization that has grown. Um, it's a, always been a golf tournament. Several years ago, uh, they changed it and did a, a dinner uh, event the night before golf. And to try to make it a, uh, a fundraising event for, for everybody. Uh, the organization has uh, developed a lot more and changed a lot more over the years. Now it's, it's open to anyone in Mansfield uh, that would like to play in a golf tournament, give to a great organization that, that gives 100% of its proceeds back to those in Mansfield that need it. So we, we have continued to grow. And like you said, uh, it's a great organization, a small organization in Mansfield that it does a lot of good work for those people in Mansfield. And so you've got the golf tournament coming up on Sunday, this coming Sunday. You've got the charity dinner on Saturday night. How can the Mansfield community get involved? We have a Facebook page that we do a lot of our uh, networking and uh, communications. That's kind of our big tool. We have um, uh, Battle of the Nines um, website that you can go to, um, and you can get that via the Facebook uh, social media aspect and, and, and jump to the uh, website that way. And then um, obviously the Walnut Creek, you can go up there and get information at the club uh, on the organization and, and on uh, just the event that's coming weekend. So there's several ways to get to it. Um, obviously um, contacting me, me directly or uh, through email uh, can happen as well. Uh, we'll get you involved in however we can. We, uh, we are expecting a big turnout actually this year. Um, uh, just to kind of give you some, some numbers that we've never really had more than, you know, that 110 to 112 golfers. And, and this year we've actually sold out uh, at 162 golfers. So we're expecting uh, expecting a good event this year. And where's the charity dinner going to be held? Uh, we're actually holding the event at Walnut Creek and then the ballroom. We have the ballroom and the nines bar, uh, and both of them to where we'll kind of be moving around. We have the patio uh, for some outdoor outside seating and just getting outside of the room. And so it will all be at Walnut Creek held uh, Saturday evening at 6.30 is when it kind of starts the registration. 
and it'll go till probably around 11. Well, we do uh, we do a dinner, and we're also doing um, some live auction. We have about 10 or 11 live auction items that we'll raffle off, and then we have a handful of uh, really nice silent auctions that we'll um, have space throughout the room that uh, people can bid on. And it's a come and go, and um, we really uh, look forward to to hosting it and, and having a big turnout this year. So again, look up the Battle of the Nines on Facebook, or they can contact you by email. Uh, Todd, what's your email address? He is in Todd Chapel, C H A P P E L L at Basic B A S I C C O M P dot com. So Basic Comps with a C dot com. Todd Chapel, I wish you the best on this weekend. And uh, Battle of the Nines taking place again Saturday night for the dinner, Sunday for the golf tournament. Uh, thanks for being on About Mansfield. Steve, thank you so much. We're looking forward to a great weekend. The City of Mansfield announced that the Veterans Day Parade will be held in Mansfield this year. The parade will take place on Saturday, November 6th, starting at 10 a.m., going through historic downtown. If your business, organization, or group is interested in participating in the parade, the city is now accepting entry applications through Friday, October 15th. The COVID epidemic continues its spread here in Mansfield. Roving science reporter Dennis Webb keeps us up to date. Dennis? Thank you, Steve. The city of Mansfield saw a slight increase in weekly new cases reported this past week at 197 citizens. This is a little up from the previous week, suggesting we might be leveling off. Back in May, this number was below 50 each week. Two new fatalities here this past week, suggesting a small increasing trend. 46% of Mansfield citizens over age 12 are fully vaccinated, according to the county. This is a minimal increase over the week before. Public health analysis suggests we need to get to around 70% to be able to stop or contain the viral spread. Mansfield Independent School District identified 357 active cases among students and staff. This is a big increase from last week's 223. You can find their daily reporting by school on the MISD website. Tarrant County's overall trend suggests the same increasing spread. 1,162 fellow citizens were in one of the county's hospital with the virus at the end of last week. This number has increased each of the last 13 weeks, growing from 80 citizens early in June. 117 fellow Tarrant County citizens were reported to have passed away from the virus this past week, the largest number we have seen since March at the back end of the January epidemic wave. The county's test positivity rate remains around 20%, indicating a lot of infected citizens have not yet been diagnosed. Community spread remains estimated as high. Texas statewide trends are similar. Tarrant County public health officials, our governor, our president, and all living former presidents recommend that all eligible citizens get vaccinated. From the Science Desk at About Mansfield, I'm Dennis Webb. Take a look at sports for the second week in a row. Only one of the five Mansfield ISD football teams was victorious last week. This time it was Summit as they rose to the occasion and beat the Mansfield Tigers 34-14. In other games, Eaton routed Legacy 47-zip. Sam Houston nipped Timberview 28-27 and Lakeridge fell to Prosper 49-7. Upcoming games this week, Lakeridge takes on Denton Geyer on Thursday night at Newsom Stadium, while Under the Stars on Friday... Home Team Legacy and Mansfield Tigers go head-to-head at Newsom. The Wolves of Timberview take on Flower Mound at R.L. Anderson. And the 1-1 Summit Jags have the night off. Kickoff for all games 
7 p.m. Saturday, September 11th is Patriot Day and National Day of Service and Remembrance, honoring the memory of nearly 3,000 people who lost their lives in the 9-11 terrorist attacks. President George W. Bush created the recognition just three days after the attack as a national day of prayer and remembrance for the victims of the terrorist attacks on September 11th, 2001. The following year, President Bush shortened the title and proclaimed the National Days of Prayer and Remembrance and the first Patriot Day. In 2016, President Barack Obama combined the two days and proclaimed September 11th as Patriot Day and National Day of Service and Remembrance. In any event, proudly fly your flag on Saturday and take a moment to reflect and remember those who lost their lives on 9-11. In the meantime, let's check the weather for the upcoming week. Colleen? Let's take a look at the weather for the next seven days in Mansfield, Texas. We had a cold front come through earlier this week, and while it didn't bring in cooler temperatures, it did bring in some drier air. With this lower humidity, we have some really nice mornings coming our way over the next week. We'll still have highs in the mid to upper 90s most days, which is above average, but our lows may be in the upper 60s into the low to mid 70s, which is going to feel so much better. It looks like we'll be dry for most of the next week. So, the Tarrant Regional Water District suggests that your Mansfield lawn will need a half inch of irrigation this week, preferably using the cycle and soak method, which involves running your sprinklers twice in shorter increments to allow the water to soak in before the second go-round. Our friends at Water is Awesome have created a list of recommended irrigation run times based on sprinkler type, be it sprayhead, rotor zones, or multi-stream zones. You can see that list at waterisawesome.com. Coming up after the break, we will turn the page to the features section. So when we come back in 60 seconds, science reporter Dennis Webb talk science. Health specialist Katrina Brown breaks down the migraine headache in the Texas Health Tip of the Week. Home improvement specialist Terry Radswin finds himself in hot water again in the Ask Terry segment. And Brian Certain serves up another cocktail of the week with or without strawberries. Also coming up later in the episode, the trivia question of the week. And we will conclude our in-studio interview with pastor and author Dr. Katie Hayes. Stay with us. I'm Steve Casillo, and this is About Mansfield. Did you know Southwestern Adventist University is located right in our backyard? With a small, safe campus, SWAU provides a Christ-centered learning environment with hands-on experiences and dedicated professors. For a limited time, local freshmen enrolling for fall 2021 will receive a stackable $3,000 scholarship. Interested in becoming a nurse? Earn your bachelor's in nursing at Southwestern Adventist University. Learn more at swau.edu. Hey, business owners, have you thought about growing your business through social media but don't know where to start? Never fear. I'm Sonia Salazar, and Wise Media Group is here offering coaching for do-it-yourself social media marketing, or we can do it for you. We have packages for every budget. Wise Media Group specializes in organic Facebook and Instagram growth. Let's get Mansfield businesses connected in 2021. Give us a call for a free 30-minute consultation at 817 917- 913-2989. That's 817-913-2989. Or find us on social media at Wise Media Group. That's Wise, W-Y-S-E, Media Group on Facebook and Instagram. 
Wise Media Group, helping you make wise social media marketing decisions in 2021. Hi, I'm Taronda Hillman, and you're listening to About Mansfield. Let's open up the features section. Science reporter Dennis Webb tells a story about the big boy locomotive and its fuel. Dennis? Thank you, Steve. When the Union Pacific Steam Locomotive 4014, called Big Boy, came through Mansfield a few weeks ago, I was excited to see it. As a kid, my dad would always take us to the train yards in whatever town we were living to see the locomotives move around. Massive, powerful machines in all sorts of shapes and sizes. When my dad was a young man, trains meant freedom to go anywhere in the country. I remember seeing coal-fired steam trains as a child, mostly the smell of the thick coal smoke, and I was hoping to smell this and feel the rumble one more time. As a retired guy, I have time to research, and I hope to find the big boy was coal-fired. When he and his 24 giant brothers and sisters were built in the 1940s, they were all coal-fired. This was a good business model, as coal was plentiful near the steep, mountainous route where they were designed to be commercially successful. Sadly, I found that big boy, the last working member of his tribe, was fired with something called number five fuel oil. Big boy, the one we saw, was converted to oil-burning technology during its restoration here in the 21st century. Still, Big Boy's passing through our town was a great show. So what is this number five fuel oil that fired Big Boy's steam boiler? Numbers one through six are grades of fuel oil produced by distillation of petroleum. And these are considered heavier and cheaper than the gasoline we put in our cars and trucks. Number one fuel oil is better known as diesel, kerosene, or jet fuel. Numbers two and three fuel oil were most widely used for home heating in decades past, not so much in Texas. Numbers four, five, and six are primarily used in industrial furnace or boiler applications. Numbers five and six are so thick they have to be preheated before they will actually burn. But this is something you can easily do if if you're near a giant steam boiler like Big Boy. A few months ago, I was writing about my dad and his long career in the oil business. I wanted to refresh myself on where petroleum came from. Fossilized dinosaur fat, right? Actually, no, but the answer is more interesting. Out on our planet's oceans for the last several billion years, little single-cell algae and plankton live out their simple, happy lives, and when they each died, part of their remains fell to the bottom of the ocean and got covered up with silt before they could properly rot away. The rotting process mostly requires the presence of oxygen to feed bacteria that break down the organic material. If you had a big glob of dead algae and plankton on your back porch, it would quickly start rotting and become stinky, but after a while it would just be a stain on the cement that itself would fade with the ultraviolet light from the sun. All things must pass. This would seem to be a very slow process, and it is, but geologic story of our planet is about deep, deep time. So every day for billions of years, microscopic algae and plankton die, fall to the bottom of the ocean, enough silt covers it up to keep it from rotting, and pretty soon in geologic time, you have the bottom of all the Earth's oceans covered in a thick layer of organic material that can't rot and it isn't going anywhere. There are probably some dead dinosaur parts, seashells, and fish bones in there, but it's mostly dead algae and plankton. The deeper you go into this goo, the the, uh, temperature and pressure increases compacting the silt into layers of rock and the organic molecules into a substance called kerogen, a waxy organic 
substance found in some rocks, and these processes take millions of years. It is estimated that the accumulated kerogen on our planet is the largest portion of organic chemicals, things that make life work, by a factor of 10,000. This means that for every pound of organic living matter here on Earth, there are 10,000 pounds of kerogen below our feet. Pile on a few more tens or hundreds of million of years and the right combination of temperature and pressure and some of the kerogen is turned into petroleum. One complication is that over hundreds of millions of years, the subterranean layers of rock are constantly being smashed and folded by plate tectonics as layers deeply buried under the ocean end up at the top of a mountain. This is what geology is about, and I'll talk about that next week. And deep geologic faults also mess with these smooth, flat layers. The same mechanism pushes some layers deeper into the earth where we can't get to it. This complication is actually a good thing, though. If you are human trying to harvest petroleum to run your pickup truck, gas leaf blower, or railroad locomotive, as petroleum is lighter than water and porous rock, it slowly percolates upward until it runs into an impermeable layer, again over millions of years, collecting into big pools called traps among the ripples and faults of the deformed subsurface layers of rock. My dad's whole career was doing contracted scientific experiments, that is, explosions that sent sound pulses underground to bounce back and be recorded. He did this to map the subsurface layers to find these traps for the oil companies. So next time you're filling up your vehicle at the pump, you might apologize for disturbing the eternal rest of billions of years of dead ocean algae and plankton. Alternatively, you might give thanks for the immense processes our planet uses to recycle everything many times over across incomprehensible geologic time, and be thankful also for our human skills to exploit what we can find today. It is complicated. If you have any questions about science, send an email to info at aboutmansfield.com. From the Science Desk at About Mansfield, I'm Dennis Webb. It's time right now for the Texas Health Tip of the Week, sponsored by Texas Health Hospital Mansfield, located at 287 and Lone Star Road. Just how much of a pain are migraines? Let's find out with health specialist Katrina Brown. Katrina? Anyone who has suffered a migraine headache will tell you how much pain they can cause and how quickly it can ruin your day. But what exactly does a migraine headache mean? A migraine headache is a painful and sometimes chronic headache that can come on quickly, often leading to severe pain around the temple on one side of the head, which can also extend to the face, sinuses, jaw, and neck. Migraines can last from an hour to 72 hours. Migraine sufferers are often hit with bouts of nausea and or vomiting during a migraine, and a sensitivity to light or sound is common. Chronic migraine is a term used to diagnose patients having 15 or more headaches per month over a three-month period. Chronic migraines can be completely debilitating and are different from other migraines, which usually last for just a few hours. If you think you may be suffering with chronic migraines, it's a good idea to keep a migraine diary so you and your doctor can track how many days per month you experience your symptoms. It is important to know what type of migraine you have because management can vary from different migraine types. Here are a few of the most common types of migraine. Migraine without aura. Migraine without aura are the most common types of migraines, experienced by 70 to 90% of migraine sufferers. They begin with pain and no advance warning. Episodes of migraine without aura can last between 4 and 72 hours. The headache is usually felt on one side of the head with a throbbing or pulsating pain, which can affect daily life. 
Next, we have migraines with aura. Some migraine sufferers will notice visual warning signs including dizziness, blind spots in one or both eyes, prickling skin sensation, zigzag patterns in your vision, or flashing lights 10 to 15 minutes before their headache strikes. This is what is called migraine with aura, which account for about 10 to 30% of all migraine sufferers. Then you have what is called retinal migraines. Retinal migraines, or ocular migraines, are much rarer than migraines with aura. They are called retinal migraines because the common symptom is vision loss or blindness in one eye for as long as an hour, either leading up to or during the headache. Proper diagnosis and treatment of retinal migraines is imperative. See your doctor right away if you think you may be experiencing one. While we all suffer the occasional headache, it is important to know when to seek medical care. If you are having chronic headaches, you should talk to your doctor. There are a wide variety of things that may be causing them, including medications, lifestyle, stress, and other health issues like high blood pressure. If your headache gets worse suddenly, if you start to feel confused or disoriented, if you feel weak or off balance or have uncontrolled nausea and vomiting, please seek emergency help. There are a lot of medications out there that help control chronic migraine. Please talk to your doctor about what treatment is right for you. There is no need to suffer. Until next time, stay healthy, Mansfield. On behalf of Texas Health Hospital Mansfield and reporting for the About Mansfield podcast, I'm Katrina Brown. In a world where people have thousands of questions about improving and repairing their homes, one man has the answers. It's time right now for the Ask Terry segment. Terry Radswin is our resident home improvement specialist, and he answers your questions about the place that you call home. Terry? This week's question comes from Debbie, who writes, I was wondering if there is anything I can do to shorten the time it takes for hot water to come out of my sink. When I'm working in the kitchen, I find that I'm spending too much time waiting for the water to heat up. Is there a solution for this problem? Thanks for the question, Debbie, and there are actually a couple of solutions to the problem you're having. Both of them may take an electrician and a plumber to solve. The first one would be to install a recirculating pump at the water heater, which will keep the hot water flowing through the line so that you lessen the time it takes for it to arrive at each tap. With this system, there's an accompanying valve with a flow sensor installed at the furthest faucet from the water heater through which the hot water is fed back into the cold water pipe and recirculated back to the heater. You'll need an electrician to install a ground fault protected 120 volt regular house current outlet at the water heater if there isn't one already nearby, and a plumber to install the valve system itself. Most of these types of systems have a timer on the valve so that it doesn't run 24-7, helping to save electricity. One manufacturer estimates that you can save up to 12,000 gallons of water, depending on your household's usage, by not having to wait for the water at the most distant faucets to come up to temperature. The downside to this type of system, to me, is that you're dumping hot water back into your cold water lines, so that means that the water coming out of the cold side of the faucets throughout the house won't be as cold as normal tap water would be. The second option, if you're having issues at one particular faucet, is to install either a small point-of-use tank heater or a mini-tankless point-of-use heater underneath the sink at the particular location. Again, you'll need an electrician to install a ground-fault-protected 120-volt outlet under the sink, preferably on its own circuit, and a plumber to make the necessary connections. The mini-tankless unit will do the same job as a whole-house tankless water heater does, but just at a single location. When the faucet is open, the heater turns on, 
on and the water flows through heated coils inside the unit, kind of like a single cup coffee maker does, giving the user virtually instant hot water and eliminating the need to let the water run in order to get the correct temperature for cooking or washing dishes. A point of use tank heater does a similar job, but stores usually from two and a half to four gallons of water in a small tank mounted underneath the sink. Obviously, there's a giveaway involved with this option, and that's the space for storage sacrificed in order to make room for the heater. The tanked unit will cycle from time to time just like a full-sized water heater in order to keep the stored water in the tank at the desired temperature, and it will heat more water as the tank is emptied, but not as fast as the tankless type will. Both of those types of heaters will also save water and electricity as they keep you from having to run hot water waiting for it to come out to temperature and save electricity by doing most of the heating on demand. Those are the best two solutions I know. Another less desirable option would be to install a dedicated hot water line directly from your water heater to the kitchen sink, eliminating the need for the water to circulate through possibly the entire house in order to get to the kitchen. In a normal system, the hot water sitting in the pipes waiting to be delivered to a faucet naturally cools down, and especially so the farther the distance from the heater to the point of use. Bringing the water directly from heater to faucet reduces some of that convective cooling, but at a price. It would definitely be the most expensive and invasive solution because you'd have to run new piping through the walls and ceilings to get it from water heater to kitchen faucet. You might end up having to remove and replace drywall and having to have the plumber drill through studs and rafters to get the pipe where it needs to go. This would be the most radical way to go and I'd certainly look at the recirculating pump or the point of use water heater before going this route. Debbie, I hope I was able to offer you some choices to solve your situation. And if you've got questions or projects that you need help with, send them my way. You can email me at askterry at aboutmansfield.com or visit my Facebook page at Ask Terry AM Podcast or my Twitter at Ask Terry AM Pod. Thanks for listening, and we'll talk again soon. Reporting for About Mansfield, I'm Home Improvement Specialist. Terry Radswin. Brian Certain is serving up a libation steeped in tradition with or without strawberries on the Cocktail of the Week. Brian? In this week's Cocktail of the Week segment, we're going to be diving into the daiquiri. If there was ever a vintage cocktail that could lay claim to having a major identity crisis with a side of multiple personality disorder, the daiquiri would be it. Worldwide, it's known as a boozy, slushy, usually strawberry-flavored, with topped with ready whip, and it's synonymous with college spring breaks or beach vacations. But in reality, the original daiquiri was a simple sour. Remember, a sour is a base spirit, a citrus, and a sweetener. We know this because unlike most classic cocktails, with nothing more than an urban legend surrounding its invention, the daiquiri's invention was well documented. There's an actual recipe card signed and dated in 1896 by American engineer named Jennings Cox. Here's how that recipe came to be. Cox was working in Cuba in the iron mining industry, and one night while entertaining guests, the successful businessman committed the ultimate party foul. He ran out of gin, which was the fashionable drink of the day. He went out and grabbed the only booze that was readily available, locally made rum. Then adding other ingredients, which were also in abundance, sugar and citrus, he made a punch. We poured over ice and topped it with mineral water. And you know what? 
The guests loved it. They demanded to know what it was called, and quick on his feet, he declaimed the Daiquiri, which was in honor of the small beachside village where he worked. The town of Daiquiri, where also in the United States, first invaded Cuba during the Spanish-American War in 1898. But up until 1909, daiquiris were pretty much available only in Cuba. That is, until the U.S. naval officer, after a meeting with Cox, introduced it to the Army and Navy Club in Washington, D.C., and very quickly it spread in popularity throughout the United States. Fast forward a little bit to the late 1920s or early 30s, and the invention of a common household appliance would alter the rum's drink path forever. At Florida Rita, a bar in Havana that still operates today, bartender and owner Constantine Vert used shaved ice and an electric blender to make the local drink. Hello, frozen daiquiri. And the drink's slushy transformation was crystallized. Every pun intended on that one. However, when Ernest Hemingway strolled into the bar one day and fell in love with them, reportedly drinking 15 in one sitting, this frozen daiquiri, so well beaten as it is, looks like the sea where the waves fall away from the bow of a ship when she's doing 30 knots. That's from Hemingway in the book Islands of the Stream. God, he could put the words together. The Florida Reader Bar is also where the Hemingway daiquiri was made from grapefruit juice and maraschino liqueur. And thanks to the classic cocktails renaissance, the daiquiri is now back to its old, tart, unfrozen self, sans umbrella accoutrement. But to experiment with one of the best daiquiris on the planet, you need to go to New Orleans Latitude 29 Bar. And there, it said that Jeff Beachbomb Berry, the tiki cocktail expert and author, spent over a year perfecting the technique and the ingredients, from the type of ice to how many seconds should be shaken for the ideal icy temperature. But whatever you do, he says, avoid the gold or dark rum, only white rum, because it's otherwise not a daiquiri. And for all the bastardization this simple rum sour has suffered, Suffered, just do what Barry says and make the daiquiri great again. To try your hand at the American Cuban classic, hide the blender and follow the recipe below. But as always, don't worry about taking notes as I'll put all the directions on bourbongospel.com. So the ingredients for the daiquiri, you're going to need two parts of light rum. You're going to need one part of freshly squeezed lime juice. Here's a hint for you. Central Market, at all their locations, has a fresh squeezed juice bar. They will stay in your refrigerator for two to three weeks. This is a great investment in your time of not having to squeeze all these juices that I talk about. But again, we'll get back to the directions. One part of freshly squeezed lime juice, two tablespoons of sugar, and a mint leaf for garnish. Preparation. Place the sugar and lime juice in a cocktail shaker and stir until the sugar has dissolved. Pour in the rum. Fill the shaker with ice. Shake vigorously until thoroughly chilled. My suggestion is to shake it always until your hand starts to hurt because of how cold the shaker has become. Strain that concoction into a chilled glass. Garnish with a mint leaf. And there you have the original daiquiri. But as always, I'm open to hear your take and your opinion. As you can always, you can reach me at bourbongospel at gmail.com. And until next week, as the famed American poet Mark Twain said, too much of anything is bad.
but too much whiskey is barely enough. Reporting for the About Mansfield podcast, I'm Brian Certain. Congratulations to Charlotte Taylor, who was the first person to email the correct answer to last week's trivia question. The answer we were looking for is Thelma Jones. Charlotte has won a $25 gift card to the restaurant of her choice, courtesy of Mansfield Overhead Door. After the break, this week's trivia question of the week. I'm Colleen Daniel, and this is About Mansfield. Hey, it's Steve Casillo, and I want to take a second to tell you about Podcast Mansfield Recording Studio. It's where we record and produce the About Mansfield episodes. Podcast Mansfield is a full-service studio with recording, editing, mixing, and mastering capabilities. can even help market your podcast. Podcast Mansfield is home to such great locally produced shows such as Ask Philip, On the Mark, Grown and Unfiltered, and Daughter of the Other Woman, just to name a few, and handles post-production duties for remote clients such as Coaching Through Chaos out of San Diego and Epic Voices and Conversations from Palm Springs. So whether you're a hands-on person who just needs a place to record your podcast or need advice from concept to completion, Podcast Mansfield is there to help. Conveniently located on Heritage Parkway just off of 287 right here in Mansfield, mention the About Mansfield podcast and you get to record your first episode at no charge. For more information on starting your podcast or if you're just looking for a better place to record podcast mansfield recording studio can be found on the internet at podcastmansfield.com that's podcastmansfield.com hi i'm megan sutton owner of shane boys craft hawaiian grinds and you're listening to about mansfield it is time right now for the highly coveted wildly popular trivia question of the week the first person to email the correct answer to trivia at aboutmansfield.com. We'll receive a $25 gift card to the restaurant of your choice, courtesy of Mansfield Overhead Door, offering residential and commercial garage door installation and repair, as well as box truck door services. Got a broken spring? Perhaps a cable off its track? Door opener not working? You can find them on the internet at mansfieldoverheaddoor.com. Let's get to this week's question, Colleen. Well, Steve, the year was 1917, and Mansfield had an electricity problem. This week's question is, who received a 50-year franchise from City Council in 1917 to establish the city's first electric plant? Email your answer to trivia at aboutmansfield.com. Again, who received a 50-year franchise from City Council in 1917 to establish the city's first electric plant? Good luck, and thanks to Kevin and Tammy at Mansfield Overhead Door for the gift card. Welcome back to another segment of About Mansfield. I'm Steve Casillo as we are making the transition from news to talk. And today we present part two of our conversation with the Reverend Dr. Katie Hayes. In this episode, we will get into church and her new book and, of course, the ever-popular lightning round. Enjoy. You're an author. Yeah. <laughs> Just you've written a few books or co-authored a few books. I, and, yeah. And so let's talk about the latest book that is coming out is September 21st on Amazon. Yeah. Uh, God gets everything God wants. Yeah. Uh, tell me about the premise of the book. Sure. 
God gets everything God wants is um, something I believe deep in my bones. And that's saying something because uh, I have jettisoned a lot of pieces of doctrine that I was taught as a youngster I had to hang on to to be a, quote, good Christian. I believe a lot less than I used to, but the things I believe, I believe really hard. You know what I mean? Like it's sure. a, it's a hard commitment to, to just a, a couple of things that now give shape to my life as a follower of Jesus and my life as a human in this human family. And the main, the way that I sum that up and the way that we talk about it a lot at Galileo is God gets everything God wants. That is to say the story of the Bible, the one long unified story of the Bible is about contenders for primacy in this world and God's triumph over them at every turn. So if you take, for example, the story of the Exodus early on in Hebrew scriptures, mm -hmm. um, Pharaoh says, these are my people and I'll do with them what I want. And God says, no, they're not. These are my people and you have to let them go. And Pharaoh and God go head to head, you know, mano a mano. And they, they duke it out and God wins. It's a story of triumph and God gets what God wants. And then continuing on their story after story of, of God fighting for, sometimes fighting with God's people to achieve God's own purposes in this world that God still loves, going straight on through, on a through line to Jesus, who when the human family cannot bear the brightness of his light and love, they eliminate him from the face of the earth. And God says, no, you can't have him. You can't have that. Hmm. And so the story of the resurrection is for me just yet another iteration of God getting everything God wants and points to uh, an ultimacy about the universe that this is all headed somewhere. As Reverend Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. said, the arc of the moral universe is long, but it bends toward justice. That is to say, it bends, everything bends toward God eventually achieving God's own ends for this world that belongs to God. So when we, when we rehearse that story, which is what liturgy is, yeah. <clears throat> it's a rehearsal of that story again and again, then we begin to find our own lives conforming to this idea of God getting everything God wants. If I want what God wants and are, and if I am cooperative in God getting more of what God wants all the time, then when God gets everything God wants, that's going to feel like heaven to me. If I am overly invested in the status quo that works for me because I sit very near the tippy top of the privileged mountain, yeah. then when God gets everything God wants, that might very well hurt like hell. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. And so it gives us a way to sort of shape our lives, not so much by a set of thou shalts and thou shalt not, but rather more a shaping of our own desires so that we actually yearn for and rejoice when God is getting everything God wants. So if God gets everything God wants, does everything that happens on earth is what God wants? No, not yet. Not yet, because God is still engaged in this project of inviting us into partnership with God to achieve certain ends. And because God is not, um, God could be, but God is not 
uh, in this view, a dictator who, or a, say a puppeteer who's like pulling strings yeah. and making stuff happen. God isn't making anyone sick. God is not making political crises uh, around the world. God is not exploiting the resources of this planet until it's so depleted that it can't support any life, much less human life anymore. God is not doing any of those things and doesn't want any of those things. But God is still inviting us, the human family, into partnership with God's desires and giving us chance after chance after chance to lean into God's own desires, to heal the human family and the planet, to work for reconciliation in all things. Um, to do things right. To, to, to do things right, to do things justly and yeah. mercifully for and with each other and alongside, uh, alongside God, partnering in this work. When I first read the title of the book, I, God Gets Everything God Wants, I thought, well, did God want the Taliban to take over Afghanistan? Mm. Uh, you're shaking your head no. No. Okay. Did God want uh, airplanes to fly into the World Trade Centers? Uh, probably not. No, uh, probably not. And Did God want a, the U.S. empire to have meddled so much in other people's affairs that some of that stuff comes home to us? No, probably not. Yeah. Why do we do that? Yeah. I the book comes out September 21st. Uh, who do you want to read this book? Besides everybody. Well, everybody. <laughs> My dad. Yeah. <laughs> I want people to read this who are who have been working through or suffering through their own deconstruction of faith. The faith, perhaps, that they were given as a child, as a youngster, the faith they inherited from their family of origin or from the church they were brought up in, or maybe here in this buckle of the Bible belts in Texas, maybe they just picked it up from the air we're all breathing. I mean, it's, it's culturally thick around here. And in that deconstruction phase, it can be so painful to recognize that the God you were given as a child is not a God you can believe in anymore. It's not a God you trust. It's not a God you even really like. And what does that mean? I was just going to say, explain yourself. Yeah, well, it, it kind of starts it's... to come apart. I mean, what if, for example, a tenet of your faith growing up is that God blesses the righteous and punishes the wicked? Yeah. It's certainly supportable by certain biblical texts that that's the way this is all supposed to work. But then life happens. And somebody precious to you, someone beautiful to you, um, is sick with a disease they didn't ask for and didn't deserve. Now, how are you supposed to make sense of that, given that the religion of your youth told you that God blesses those who obey and punishes those who are wicked? It just doesn't. It just doesn't square. Experience sometimes does not square with the religion we were given. So that starts to come apart. Right. Or what if you get into a high school biology class and you start to realize that the theory of evolution is not quote just a theory, but that all science is theories that get tested again and again, and are the building blocks for uh, all kinds of things, including vaccines against deadly global pandemics. Right. Right. And when you start to realize that that doesn't square with a literal six day creation as we find in Genesis 1. Uh, but your church is telling you that if you ask questions about that or poke at it too hard, you're not a good believer. You're not sufficiently devout. It just starts to come apart. And I, I cannot tell you how many people I've met for whom the, the old narratives of faith are just not holding up anymore and how it hurts them. It hurts in their body as well as their spirit. It hurts their mental health and their relational health uh, with their families and you know their loved ones. Um, and so this book is an attempt to help 
spark the rehabilitative, reconstructive conversation about what it is that's left when all that other stuff falls away. What are we left with? And how then do we develop a new vocabulary, a new syntax, a new story for talking about the God of the universe who gets everything God wants? How do we do that? And then what does our life start to look like when we start to invest in that new narrative about God? And it helps then, I would assume, it, 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 it helps people create their own questions. Absolutely. Instead of going to a church and and listening to uh, from the pulpit, uh, every word is is what we're supposed to believe. Absolutely. As opposed to, I go to church and I go, well, okay, you said this, but I have a question about that, mm-hmm. and. Mm-hmm. The book helps raise questions. It helps raise questions, and it even explicitly encourages people's skepticism and questioning and dialogue and challenge with all of this stuff. I believe that God comes to us in the context where we are. My context, Galileo Church's context, is not the same as everybody else's. So in some sense, this is like this book is like an example of what grows out of a robust community life where the conversation is ongoing, where the dialogue never ends, where we are constantly reading the text together and bringing our experience to bear on what we find in the voices of our ancestors in faith in the Bible and saying, all right, now, how are we going to make enough sense out of this so that we can go home and sleep well tonight and we'll be back at it tomorrow? I got to mention about church. I grew up Catholic. Mm-hmm. I'm still Catholic. Mm-hmm. Haven't really. I think I've only been to church once in the past what 18 months because sure, yeah. because of COVID. Yeah. But to me, it was really. There's no such thing as the perfect church. No, there's not. <laughs> yeah. But trying to find a church that is as close to your beliefs as possible, the Catholic Church seems to be fairly close mm-hmm. to my beliefs. There are some things that are like, okay, let's not go there. I guess I'm trying to find a question here. Um, <laughs> well, let, let me pose a question based on okay. something you've said. Ask me a question. <laughs> what if alignment of beliefs, as you said, is not the only or best criteria by which you gauge what community of trust you want to be a part of. What if what if conformity of doctrine is not the not all it's cracked up to be? Right. What if instead um, what God wants for each of us is to find a community of beloveds, a community of trust, where our whole self is welcomed into a safe and your word soothing space, yeah. where we can actually feel secure enough to be vulnerable and let our hearts be drawn near to the heart of God, seeking always that which um, contributes to our own flourishing and the flourishing of our beloveds, our neighbors, strangers to us, and even our enemies. And then having found that community of beloveds, we can explore within that safe space a wide range of belief or unbelief. And when it all comes down to it, whether you're Baptist, Lutheran, Methodist, Catholic, uh, Mm -hmm. non-denominational, as I said earlier, we're all praying to the same God. Mm -hmm. And so we just kind of take a different avenue to get there. But I guess it all goes down to uh, the great philosopher Rodney King. Can't we all just get along and be a community? 
Yeah, and and can can a community of faith? Here's a further experiment for Galileo Church. Can a community of faith remain orthodox and say we are Christian? The community overall is Christian, and there is space here, not just not just the edge space, but mm-hmm. actually honored space, prime space for atheism, for unbelief, for agnosticism the confession of, of humble, I don't know. Um, can we make space for that? Can we indeed even make space for our Muslim friends? There are a couple of very close people to Galileo church who are Muslim and find because they need a community of beloveds, a community of trust. Galileo has at times been the closest thing to that for them. That's a aspect of the spiritual, but not religious frontier that people are tired of drawing lines around community boundaries around community that tell us all the time who's out and who's in. I I really think there is a pull in our culture right now for more inclusion. um, And yet community definition. And so we're experimenting with that all the time at Galileo. How can we be more and more inclusive and yet have a a community that is defined where we know this is Galileo and that is not? Right. Where do you expect Galileo, where do you expect Katie Hayes to be in five years and say 10 years from now? Oh, I don't know. I, I... always yearn for um, Galileo Church's own flourishing with or without me. And I think um, the congregation has shown itself, has proven itself in the last several years that it does just fine without me sometimes, which is actually a lovely feeling. I don't have plans to leave it or go anywhere, but one of the dangers of starting anything new is a kind of founder syndrome sets in and a church starts to imagine maybe that it, it can't it can't function without its founding person. Right. And... I, and- Church is 52 weeks of the year. Yeah. Does that mean Katie Hayes can't take a vacation? Yeah, no. that's not, No. And indeed, I've taken long breaks from Galileo. A writing leave in 2018 was like five months of the whole year. Oh, and wow. the church flourished during that time. It was yeah. fine. It was hard, but it was fine. And so when I imagine Galileo in the future, I try not to be too attached to outcomes that involve me. I just imagine a congregation where new people are still coming, where uh, theological rehabilitation is still happening in a robust and dialogical way, where God is still being glorified through beautiful, simple, inclusive worship just all along the way. And who sits in for Katie Hayes when you take a day off? Oh, all kinds of people. All kinds of people. Yeah. In September, actually, I'm taking a preaching break. I won't be away from the church, but my creative brain is tired. The pandemic, (laughs) I don't want to be too whiny about it, but the pandemic has been hard on all kinds of caregivers and everyone else. Did you have to go online for a while? We did. We went online only. We, We did. I think we did 68 consecutive Sundays online only. So we were live streaming out of our big red barn Mm -hmm. with only a skeleton crew. There were only five humans in our giant space live streaming out, which we had begun before the pandemic because we are trying to export this good news about God's inclusive welcome of all people uh, far beyond our own walls. Uh, And thank goodness we had started that so that when the pandemic came and everybody had to go home, we were already present in the virtual space. And we'll maintain that virtual space um, when the 
pandemic ends, please God, from my mouth to God's ear, <laughs> let it be over. Uh, but we want to we want to maintain that space because we know there are still a lot of spiritual refugees, a lot of queer people, a lot of queer believers hanging on to faith by their fingernails, who really are alone out there in the Tahokas of the world, right? right? Where they don't have an inclusive church like Galileo, they can get to in real life, or maybe it's just not safe for them yet to do that. Um, so we'll keep broadcasting, being live online, and building infrastructure for relationship, not just sending out content, but actually forming communities of people who may never have seen each other in the flesh, but have learned to love each other across the screens. It's a brave new world. <laughs> yeah. That's the one thing I love about the World Wide Web, taking a Sunday mm-hmm. um, uh, a Sunday service, mm-hmm. put it on the World Wide Web, and now you've got the opportunity for people to, mm-hmm. to tune in. There is a church in Fort Worth that a friend of mine goes to, and he's the music minister there. Mm-hmm. While they went online only, it turned out the husband and wife pastors were doing it from a vacation home in another state, but yeah. it worked. It, it works, yeah. Because... Mm-hmm. Service went on mm-hmm. every Sunday as mm-hmm. scheduled mm-hmm. at 10 a.m. Yeah. Like, it really, <laughs> like he yeah. used to go to. I, I mean, it, it, I am I am not the kind of person who's going to say the pandemic brought us a bunch of hidden blessings. I'm not much of a silver lining person. It's really been hellish for so many people. We've we've suffered in very real and so far immeasurable ways. We don't yet know all the effects of the loneliness and fragmentation, the isolation that we've experienced over all this time. But that said, I will say some important questions were raised for churches and faith communities all across the world um, by the pandemic. That is to say, are we only a church when we can all get to the same address and work our way through the liturgy together? Is that what church is? Or is it something else? Is it really about relationships that have been built here that are supportive of each of our spiritual lives, supportive of our human flourishing in all kinds of ways? And do those relationships endure when the infrastructure of the church is blown apart by a virus. Right. Um, and so I, I, lots of churches are finding that the answer to that is yes. Some are finding the answer to that was, oh, actually, no. We never built anything that would endure if we couldn't meet together. So, With one service a week, Sundays at 5, mm-hmm. uh, how do you keep your parishioners in, uh, engaged throughout the rest of the week? Well, we meet in all kinds of iterations at all kinds okay. of times throughout the week. So we have what we call G groups, Galileo groups. So a small group infrastructure like you might find in other churches that meet in people's homes or in a bar or at the fuzzies on the patio. Um, We do Bible and beer each week, kind of an open group that people come and go from where we do a Bible study while we drink beer together. There's a a craft group that meets every Friday on Zoom so they can work on their crafts. They can crochet or quilt or uh, hammer and saw in their garage while they're online together. Things like that are going on all the time. And we use every kind of social media we can think of to keep people connected. So we're not only producing content on Facebook or Twitter or TikTok. We have You have a TikTok. Oh, absolutely. Nice. We're well on our way to 3,000 followers on TikTok. We're very excited about that. Um, we use Discord. We use uh, we built a, a Minecraft server that looks sort of like our barn within our space. We're using all kinds of things, Marco Polo, to keep people engaged with each other and using um, Facebook groups and other Marco Polo groups, group me messaging to keep people talking to each other uh, asynchronously, mostly, so that the conversation is going on all the time, 24-7. 
I'm such an old man, I have no idea what the group me and, and <laughs> I know what TikTok is because I have yeah. a twenty year old daughter. Right, but of course. I yeah, you 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 threw some terms right over my head. We're just trying all kinds of stuff. Yeah. But that's great because you are trying to attract a, a younger audience. We're trying to make sure that people who are lonely and are worried that God doesn't like them because the people of God have been unkind to them, that they know they're not alone. We're trying to build community. Right. We're trying to build community and make it possible for people to find that community of belonging in Jesus' name, because we're Christian, and, and using any means that we can imagine to do that. Katie Hayes, what's your favorite ice cream? Mm, you know, I'm really, really happy with just a straight like Dutch chocolate. Yeah. But if it's got some peanut butter swirls in there, I'm really, really happy, <laughs> blissed out by that. Yeah. We have reached the part of the interview where... We really get to know Katie Hayes. Okay. We dig deep into the psyche okay. of, of Katie Hayes. Be it's careful, called the lightning. Be so careful. It's called the lightning round. <laughs> okay. It's a very simple exercise of this or that. <clears throat> and uh, if you're ready. Let's do it. All right. Night or day. I'm a morning person, mostly. I get up pretty excited to with a bunch of new ideas every single morning. Some of them are good. <laughs> and I'm ready to work on them when I start. So would that be day? I guess so. Yeah. Okay. Text or phone call? I prefer text anymore. And always text before you call. It's just rude to just call someone out of the blue. Summer or winter? Winter. Stripes or polka dots? Neither. I'm more of a solids. Look at me. I'm dressed all in gray and black. Yeah. Yeah. Brady Bunch or Gilligan's Island? Oh, I watched them both faithfully. Old Testament or New Testament? Uh, love them both. The Hebrew scriptures and the New Testament for me are a unified story. I can't have one without the other. I had a pastor sitting in that seat probably a month, month and a half ago. I asked the same question he, and same answer. Both. Good. Yeah. Pancakes or waffles? Pancakes. Spring or fall? Fall. Red wine or white wine? Red. <laughs> Although it makes my face splotchy and gives me a little heartburn anymore, but I can't stay away. <laughs> Beach or mountains? Mountains. Natural water, I have a phobia. I don't like it. Really? Mm-hmm. I grew up in the panhandle of Texas. What do I know about natural water? I, I, that's a good point. Yeah. In Tahoka, mm-hmm. Galileo Church meets every Sunday at 5 p.m. It does. Do you want to give out the address? Do you want to give out a website? Do you want to give out, uh, do you want to invite oh, our yeah, listeners to, to, to come to one of your services? Absolutely. You can find all you need to know on galileochurch.org.org. That's our website. And we have tried to make as much of our life together transparent there as we can. Um, we meet just off of I-20. It's exit 442A off of I-20. We're on the south side of the interstate. Um, just off the frontage road and Gilman Road. The big red barn. You the can't big miss red it. barn. It's hard to miss. Well, sadly, it's actually easy to miss. And if you do drive on by it, it's going to take a minute to come back around. Uh-oh. So, And then the book comes out September 21st. Yeah. I'm going to just tell you a secret that a lot of people who pre-ordered on Amazon are already getting theirs at home Oh, nice! now. And the Audible version is available right now. 
And it's called uh, God Gets Everything God Wants. Yes. Katie Hayes, you've been a blast to have on this uh, this program. Thank you for being on About Mansfield. Thanks, Steve. It's been a lot of fun, and it's good to talk to you again. Coming up next week on About Mansfield, it's Mansfield News, Talk, and Information. We will talk in studio with an inspiring Mansfield couple who have collectively lost over 200 pounds of body weight. Until then, don't forget to follow this podcast if you haven't already so you never miss an episode. It's free and it's easy. Just enter your email address on our website, aboutmansfield.com. We will never send you any spam. We promise. About Mansfield is recorded at Podcast Mansfield Recording Studio. Hosts, Steve Casillo and Colleen Daniel. Reporters, Stacy Main and Dennis Webb. Moment with the Mayor feature, Michael Evans. Health Tip of the Week, Katrina Brown. Home Improvement feature, Terry Radswin. Cocktail of the Week feature, Brian Certain. Post-production editing, mixing, and mastering, Steve Casillo and Jacob Atkinson. We thank you all for listening. On behalf of the entire news team, I'm Steve Casillo, and this is About Mansfield. <laughs>